What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how mothers and pregnant women are discriminated against and punished here at home and around the world. We'll ask Katha Pollitt how and why. Also, we want to talk about labor unions and politics as Labor Day approaches. You may recall that the Supreme Court struck that deadly blow at organized labor in June when it ruled five to four that government workers who choose not to join unions may not be required to help pay for collective bargaining. We'll speak with Lee Saunders, president of AFSCME. He'll explain what unions are doing to fight back in the November election and in the long run. But first, we need to ask the key question of our time. Is Melania Trump a hero of the people? or an accomplice to evil. For that, we turn to our senior Melania correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning recent book about Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Soon I'll be known, though, as the Melania correspondent for Start Making Sense, and that will be the pinnacle of my journalistic okay. career. Well, I'm very <laughs> glad to hear that. You know, the debate over whether Melania is a hero or villain has, for some reason, intensified over the last week or two. Just to set the context here, it's hard for anybody to be the first lady. The first lady is an ornamental role, and it always has been. You're not the elected official. You are simply the spouse, unless you have great force of personality, like Eleanor Roosevelt, who is always cited in this way. You end up decorating the White House and uh, talking about children, not that that's unimportant. There have been campaigns against obesity and for organic food and all sorts of good things. But you don't really have a policy role. You're not the elected official. Just remember what happened to Hillary Clinton when she started to espouse health care. First ladies, as you say, are supposed to have 
projects, causes. Melania's first project was that she was against cyberbullying. Do you think that she noticed that the biggest cyberbully on the planet was her husband? (laughs) I think she noticed. But Trump's continuing return to Twitter as a as a method of cyberbullying his opponents and calling them out and beating on them. I think it intensified the public's regard of his cyberbullying and therefore her program began to seem more and more like it was in contrast to his behavior. And maybe too, as time went on, she began to think, oh, you know, I really have uh, set myself out on a path against what my husband is doing. Another key moment in the debate over whether Melania is a quiet hero of the resistance was at Trump's State of the Union address where she wore a white pantsuit. Didn't that look a lot like the white pantsuit that Hillary wore when she accepted the Democratic nomination? As a sort of semi-fashion connoisseur, I have to say it didn't really look like it. Like an average person looking at it would say, whoa, that's a white pantsuit, like the white pantsuits Hillary always wears. But in fact, it was a very fashionable, stylish, beautiful pantsuit. <laughs> but it was white, and it was important in that way, unless you think that making, that if your only ability to be articulate in public is through what you're wearing, that that's a sad thing. But it was something. I think it was noticeable. I think it was a commentary. And then uh, more recently, there's been a lot of talk, speculation in the media about Melania wearing something called the pussy bow. What is the pussy bow? The pussy bow, every woman will recognize it, although she might not know the name for it. It makes your uh, blouse, also an old-fashioned word, look just a little more demure. It's got It's a tie around the neck that comes with the blouse, and uh, it ties under the chin like a bow around the neck of a kitty cat. But it was particularly noticeable when Melania wore a kind of rose magenta pussy bow blouse. I can't believe I'm saying those words in public. (laughs) To the second debate uh, during the presidential campaign, right after the tape had emerged of her husband saying, you just grab him by the pussy. So it was seen to be some kind of a comment. Now, I just, again, have to reiterate, it is tragic to have to make all your comments through fashion. You know, it's you're not free. One other potential fashion statement. During the waves of outrage over Trump's practice of separating children from their mothers at the border, Melania was the only member of the Trump administration or family to actually visit a detention center for uh, new uh, refugees But when she left the White House, she was wearing that jacket. What did it say on the back? It said, I really don't care. Do you? That caused a lot of confusion. Is she saying she doesn't care about the refugee children? If so, why is she going to visit them? What what do you make of this? Well, I guess we don't know under what conditions she went. So maybe she's saying, I really don't care about them, but my husband is making me go because no one else will go and I'm the girl and I have to go care about children. But the other, many other options for interpreting this, it's almost like being in French uh, critical theory when you watch (laughs) Melania. Uh The other idea is that this was a message to her husband. I mean, after all, when she turned away, she, her back was to the White House. Who would be looking out the window? Not that he was. 
but her husband and saying, I really don't care what you think about my going to visit this shame of your White House. I'm going anyway. And I think one thing to imagine uh, in this marriage is that she married a very different Donald Trump from the one there is today, at least in his policies. He used to seem liberal because he wanted the New York elite to like him. And now he's gone very hard right. And I'm sure that his politics did not have much to do with her decision about whether to marry him or not. But now she's wedded publicly to this person who perhaps she doesn't like what he's doing. That to me is the main thing that maybe these signals make. But I, I really, how can we know? There's one more intriguing move of Melania's that I want to ask you about. She announced she's going to Africa without him. (laughs) That seems surprising. You know, why Africa? Does she care about Africa? What does Africa mean to her? It seems like she's just making a choice, like, hmm, he doesn't like Africa, I'll go to Africa. Because uh, there were on his list of shithole nations many African countries He's not very good at naming them. I can't remember what he calls Namibia and what he calls Zambia, but he gets them confused. Too many syllables. And he hasn't gone. He's never set foot in Africa. So she's going. And the first time he ever mentioned Africa in a policy context was in the last couple of days when he tweeted about news he had heard that in South Africa, White farmers were being massacred. This turns out to be completely untrue. It's a right Maybe Melania is going to investigate the (laughs) allegations. I imagine she'll go to refugee camps and to uh, starvation centers. And schools for girls. And schools for girls. Usual. (laughs) But, you know, good. Good. And I think you have to also take into consideration when you think about the messages she seems to be sending and all the resistors among us think that she's maybe a resistor in hiding. She might be an angry wife. She clearly doesn't like to be touched by the president. Who would? (laughs) But, you know, we've seen all the videos of her batting away his hand and pulling her hand away when he grabs it. And he does it for show, but she doesn't want to be part of the farce. That is my interpretation. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. President. She has allegedly, but it doesn't seem very alleged. It seems to be true, a separate bedroom in the White House. And when they travel, she sleeps in another room. And then she was taken off to Walter Reed with an unnamed kidney malfunction for five days where we didn't even know what was happening with her. I mean, there are problems in this marriage. There's an allegation that she lives in Maryland to be near her son, and she doesn't even live in the White House. So. We can't know what goes on in their marriage, but a lot of this may be her way of choosing to express a difference with him in public because she's angry. And who wouldn't be angry with Stormy Daniels, et cetera, in the the mix? The New York Times style section of all places had a page one huge reported story on Melania by Maggie Haberman and her colleagues. They, They had one fascinating reported fact that Melania watches CNN instead of Fox News. Yes, and her her people were reduced to saying the first lady is allowed to watch whatever she wants to watch. But apparently, according to the New York Times style section, he was not too happy with her watching CNN. He wants her to watch Fox. CNN, of course, is militantly anti-Trump now, in some ways even more so than MSNBC. So it 
if she watches CNN, that's that's something. She's getting an earful. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just add one yeah, other thing? Please. Donald Trump says LeBron James is a low IQ person or some such. Oh, so-and-so made LeBron look smart. And that's not easy to do. So Melania goes on and starts praising LeBron's programs with children. So that's what I'm saying. It's a reactive thing. She's yeah. pushing back. The current most active proponent of the view that Melania is a hero of the resistance is the New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, who wrote a couple of days ago, quote, she edges ever closer to open contempt for him. She finds increasingly clever ways to show it. It's a perfect wedding of patriotism and payback for all the humiliations that he has heaped on her, close quote. What do you think of Frank Bruni? You know, when you put it all together, which he did in that piece, it's hard to resist coming to that conclusion, especially the payback thing. So what does it mean? What good is it for us? It's interesting about Melania, and we can feel sorry for her or whatever. She made her choice, you know. She made her bed. She doesn't really sleep in it. (laughs) (laughs) But their marriage is in a very tough spot. If she doesn't like him one bit, who knows what the prenup is like. And she has a child with him. Is she going to walk out on that? So she's maybe doing her best. We've been talking here for this whole time about Melania as some kind of subtle Trump critic. But of course, there's another view. Melania is not a hero of the people. She's an accomplice of evil. The Times, after that Frank Bruni column appeared, printed comments, 1,688 comments before they closed the comment section. And then they ran two letters. Here's a typical one. Melania Naus chose to marry a racist, crooked boor with a clear history of infidelity and lots of cash. Why do we assume she is somehow captive and protesting? The only valid sign of resistance would be filing for divorce and speaking out. Or, or here's another. What Melania has done, quote, pales in comparison to the workers of Eleanor Roosevelt, both Mrs. Bush's, Hillary Clinton, and Michelle Obama. Melania Trump does not come close. I think you have to say that's true. And I believe that filing for divorce would be an incredible and heroic thing. But I don't think that's going to happen. But I think the thing to ask is, you know, people want to accuse her of being kind of a whore because she married for this huge amount of money, someone we think of as not particularly desirable. Okay, but that that isn't so interesting. What's interesting is how much power does a wife have over a man in power? And I would say in this case, she has very little power and she did get one thing out of him in spite of all the uh, attacks that he's made on chain migration, she got her parents chain migrated (laughs) into U.S. citizens. So you got to say she won a little battle there by perhaps by doing all these things we've seen her do. Amy Willens, our chief Melania correspondent. Amy, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Always fun, John. Now it's time to talk about mothers and pregnant women and how they are discriminated against and punished here at home and around the world. For that miserable story, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Katha, welcome back. 
Thanks for having me with this depressing story. <laughs> well, Donald Trump's cruelty to children crossing the border is only the beginning of the bad things that happen to children uh, in the United States, most of which have nothing to do with Donald Trump. Where should we start? How about how about the rates of infant and maternal mortality in the United States? Yes. Well, although we are very proud of our medical system, and although we are a high-income country, the rate of maternal mortality in the United States is the highest in the developed world, which is really pretty shocking. Um, and we have a very high rate of infant mortality as well. And uh, here's something really shocking. Ours is the only country where the death rate for women, uh, the maternal death rate for women is rising. Ugh, why? Um, everywhere, else in the, everywhere else in the world is getting better and we're getting worse. Um, why, Katha? I have to ask you, why is that? Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. There's poverty, there's racism, hospitals and doctors that are ill-prepared for obstetric emergencies, and the low priority given to the issue. And here's another really upsetting detail. For every woman who dies, which is about 700 every year in the U.S., 70 almost do. Mm. And this falls especially heavily on uh, black women. So it's really a very serious problem. And I understand from your new column in The Nation that part of this serious problem arises out of the practices of Catholic hospitals. Well, this is really amazing. One in six hospital beds is in a Catholic hospital. And in much of the country, that's the only hospital that's around. And this, again, is affects disproportionately rural women and women of color who tend to live in those areas. So that means that procedures that are banned by the church are unavailable to many patients, and that would include birth control, sterilization, male sterilization like vasectomies, abortion, in vitro fertilization, and most disturbingly from the death point of view, uh, standard ways of managing miscarriages. You know, if you have a miscarriage and it is incomplete, they'll give you a DNC they'll, to get the fetus and the birth matter, whatever they call it, out of you. Several women have nearly died because the Catholic hospital refused to complete a miscarriage in process. And this was the same thing. The same, these are the same rules that killed Savita Halapanavar in Ireland which was just so shocking and so horrified people that it jump-started the campaign to overturn that country's abortion ban. Because in Catholicism, apparently, completing a miscarriage before the, the fetal heartbeat is dead, even though that fetus will never survive, it's dying, it's too young to survive, that's abortion to them. Abortion opponents do argue that having a baby is is a good thing, a natural thing, and a socially important thing, what do we do uh, in the United States to help women who are pregnant? Well, we just don't do very much. In fact, we make life harder for them. We have laws that are supposed to protect pregnant women from job discrimination, but it's rampant anyway, um, as it is around the world. 
And uh, the New York Times had an article recently about women being denied, you know, just the most ordinary accommodations like, can I carry a water bottle? I need an extra bathroom break. Mm. Um, I'm a policeman, a policewoman. How about a bulletproof vest that fits? <laughs> and, and you know that these things, it's not so hard to give someone a water bottle, yeah. um, that these things are done out of hostility to pregnant women. It's to drive them out of the workplace. One of the other things you emphasize in your new column is among the bad things that that happen to children and their mothers in the United States is poverty. Huge numbers of children live in poverty. What are your figures there? Oh, well, this is so shocking. This is just so shocking. 34% of black kids, that's a little bit over one in three, 28% of Latino kids, and for whites, it's still too high, 12%. There um, was an idea that the government should deal with trying to reduce poverty among children, that it's bad for children to grow up in poverty, and therefore we should have government programs. And there was a government program. It was called originally Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. It was part of Social Security. It was established in 1935, and it was abolished in 1996. Who was president in 1996? When... Well, it was, it was Bill Clinton who was president. And the rules have got, it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. States are allowed to cut all kinds of things. I mean, there are cuts in food stamps now, for God's sake. Uh, everything that could help kids is being cut from after-school programs. You know, Betsy DeVos just said, uh, you know, well, let's give the schools some money to buy guns for teachers. <laughs> and then we read in another article that teachers spend about $500 each buying supplies for, their, for the kids. Yeah. It, it is as if, I don't know, it's as if we have really given up on very large numbers of people, most of whom are, are people of color. I know you remember this. When Bill Clinton advocated for abolishing aid for families with dependent children in 1996, he said he was against welfare because he was in favor of personal responsibility in bearing children and raising them. Are you against personal responsibility? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not at all. Um, and that's why I favor lots of lots of free birth control, lots of access to abortion, giving people the kinds of opportunities that will help them have real choices in life. But you have to deal with the world as it is. If someone has a baby, you have to take care of mother and child. Also, people have kids when they're in a good place, and then a few years later they're not. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, if you've had much to do with low-income people, their lives can be very... Um, precarious. Precarious. Very, precarious, the very word. Yeah. Um, and so just as it seems like they're getting ahead, there's some big expense, someone is sick, they lose their job, and it's, they're just on this kind of awful treadmill. And I think that the government has a responsibility to give people a stable, decent life. And I don't even think that's so controversial. The other argument that was made against AFDC uh, was that it was paying women to have children. Oh, that was so ridiculous. And, you know, there was that thing, what is it, the family cap, where certain states, I think New Jersey was one, I think Massachusetts became one, uh, which you'll note are blue states, but a lot of other states did this too, which was to say, if you're on welfare and you have another baby, we're not going to 
increase the amount of money that you get. So instead of you're taking care of you know, two children on X dollars a month, now you'll be taking care of three children on X dollars a month. This was supposed to make poor families on welfare be prudent about birth control and all like that. Did it work? I mean, there were people, you know, I remember, I remember reading an article by Stanley Crouch, who's a, you know, big black writer, writing in the Daily News saying, well, this will take care of that problem. Um, Because people just don't think. They don't think, what are people really like? How do people really make decisions? And, you know, the one way they don't make decisions is saying, you know, I would get $50 if I had a month if they had another baby. And now I, so I'll have the baby and, oh, they're not going to give me the $50, so I guess I won't have a baby. That's not how people think. So anyway, this was fantastically unsuccessful in lowering the rate of children born to women who are already on welfare. And I just read that Massachusetts is thinking, well, we should get rid of this family cap thing. It doesn't work. So our initial premise was Donald Trump's cruelty to children has been horrifying, but most of the problems facing children, especially poor children in the United States, have not been caused by Donald Trump. Some were caused by Bill Clinton. Some are caused by the Pope. But there I would, are a lot of people at fault here. It's true. But I, I would like to end on a positive note. The United States is a horrible place to get pregnant and have children if you are not white and middle class. What are the best places to get pregnant and have children? France is a very good place to have a baby. Uh, Scandinavia is a very good place to have a baby. You know where else? Austria. When I lived in Austria, I was astounded at how much social help there is. And they, you know, they have nurses that come to your house after you have a baby and just see that everything's all right. And it's really great. The, the catch with all these, a lot of these places that are great for mothers and children is that they're not great for working mothers and children. It goes along with a culture of staying home. Um, and in France, if you have three children, only less, fewer than 40% of women with three children are in the workforce because the business culture is very unforgiving mm-hmm. and the whole society is oriented around, you know, oh, stay home, it's lovely. But there's um, a lot of uh, paid parental leave in, in those countries, isn't yes. there? For- yes, there is. And you know there's a catch there, too, that people in America who work for this really need to think about, which is if the parental leave is too long, it cuts the woman off from work later. Um, and that was what happened in Germany, where they have a parental leave, uh, maternity leave that lasts like three years. <laughs> wow. And by the end, of, the end of that time, the woman is usually said, oh, fuck, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry I shouldn't say that. Uh, I can't, you know, I've lost all my contacts with the work world, and I'll just have another baby. The devil is in the details with a lot of these things that we just say, oh, they're great, because they can be great in some ways and not in others. Katha Pollitt, she wrote her new column for The Nation about how mothers and pregnant women are undervalued, discriminated against, and punished in the United States and in other countries around the world. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thanks for having me, John. As Labor Day weekend approaches, we want to talk about unions and politics. You'll remember that the Supreme Court dealt a major blow to organized labor in June when it ruled five to four that government workers who choose 
not to join unions may not be required to help pay for collective bargaining. That means that public sector unions across the nation could lose tens of millions of dollars and see their political clout and their organizing capability crippled. For comment, we turn to Lee Saunders. He's president of AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, which represents 1.6 million members. Lee Saunders, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be on the show. Well, that Supreme Court ruling came in a lawsuit against AFSME, your union. Remind us what that was about. Well, it was brought by a state worker out of uh, the state of Illinois who was opposed to paying fair share fees to the union for benefits that he derived from the union. Uh, What I mean by that is that uh, we have the obligation, the union has the obligation to represent members and non-members alike. Uh, So they are covered by the collective bargaining agreement. We have to represent them uh, in grievance proceedings all of the benefits are derived, that are derived by negotiating that contract and being represented by a union, those benefits are also received by non-members who, before the Supreme Court case, were paying agency fees. Since the Supreme Court case, uh, the entire public sector across the country is now right to work, meaning that if you don't want to be a member, you don't have to pay an agency fee, yet you still receive the same level of benefits that union members receive. The recent Supreme Court decision overturned. The basic question that Republicans are asking public employees, why should you pay for something, contract representation, that you can get for free? What's what's your answer? Well, my answer is this, that the whole notion of exclusive representation where we represent members and non-members, we support the logic of exclusive representation. It's up to the union not only to continue to talk to our members and educate and organize and mobilize them, but we believe that it's up to us also to talk to the potential members and convince them that it's a good thing to become a part of the union because in in numbers you have strength, additional strength. We are organizing and mobilizing our members and potential members like never before. We have had close to one million individual one-on-one conversations with uh, our members and non-members across the country, listening to them, urging them to be a part of the union to make it stronger. And uh, we're getting a very, very positive reaction. So one Supreme Court decision made by five men in black robes is not going to deter us. And uh, we're going to continue to do what we do best, and that's organizing workers. Well, at the same time that we see this escalating Republican war on unions conducted mostly through the courts, but also in some state legislatures, the opinion polls, there's new opinion polls from Gallup and Pew that show the highest level of public support for unions in decades, around 60 percent. What do you make of that? Well, I think that this is really a movement moment for the labor movement, for the progressive movement across the country. Even with the attacks that we have been under for the past three, four, five years, uh, since 2016, we've organized 18,000 new members into our union. Uh, More and more people understand the value of labor unions. They understand that uh, labor unions represent uh, checks and balances against those who want more power, 
and more wealth at the expense of working people. And I believe that's why you have uh, folks coming together. If you look around the country, you have the women's marches making their voices heard. You have the strikes, the teacher strikes and some of the reddest of states in this country demanding better wages and benefits for themselves, but also demanding quality public education for their students. We had our own strike at Local 3299 in the University of California, uh, demanding better wages and benefits for very low-paid workers. So people are willing to take collective action, and people are coming together, I believe, uh, like never before. This really is a movement moment, not just with the labor movement, but with our allies across the country. And there's another big surprise. In Missouri, voters rejected a right-to-work law in a referendum in August. This was a law that would have hampered union organizing in the state. Two-thirds of the voters in Missouri voted in favor of unions. Do you know how that happened? Well, I think it happened. In fact, I know it happened because, number one, we hit the streets. Uh, The labor movement in Missouri knocked on doors, talked with folks, talked about the fact that working people needed a level playing field and right to work in that state was not a good idea, as it's not a good idea in any, any state. Now, don't confuse this, though. In, with the Supreme Court decision that was passed a couple of months ago, right to work in the public sector is still the law, in the land, uh, law of the land. Yeah. In Missouri, this was right to work covering pu- private sector workers, okay? okay? And we were over to overturn, able to overturn that law because the legislature passed right to work. The governor signed it. But through organizing and mobilizing and educating communities throughout Missouri, they turned out and they stopped right to work in the private sector in that state. That just shows you that people are willing to make their voices heard. They're willing to fight back. They see that uh, the, the playing field is not level and they want to do something about it. Well, there's, of course, one uh, very big immediate uh, question about the Supreme Court's June decision. Democrats count on unions like AFSCME, to play a central role in voter registration before Election Day and turn out the vote work on Election Day. This means what you've been talking about, door-to-door canvassing, phone banking, which are much more effective than TV ads in mobilizing people to vote. We, of course, have this election coming up on November 8th. My my question is whether the Supreme Court decision will affect AFSCME's canvassing, phone banking, registration, and turnout efforts leading up to November 8th, which, of course, is what the Republicans are trying to accomplish. We're, we're going to be going all out, and we have targeted races all across the country especially at the state and local level, Uh, although we understand that the congressional races are very, very important. What happens here in Washington, D.C. is is very important. But we're going to have, uh, I think, a political program uh, that will be second to none. And how we're doing that is sitting down, talking with our members and potential members one-on-one, listening to what they've got to say, talking about the issues, not talking about personalities, but talking about the issues that impact on them every single day, whether it's health care, whether it's retirement security, whether it's the privatization of public services, whether it's the attack on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, those are the kinds of issues that we're talking with our folks about. They understand it. 
and they get it. And they understand that the only way that we can counter the attempts to take away those kinds of benefits is to hit the voting, uh, the voting booths in, uh, in November. So we're continuing to mobilize. We're continuing to knock on doors like we've uh, never done before. We're finding that uh, our communities are excited, they're engaged, they're angry, and they are going to make their voices heard. Let me ask a little bit more about the state-level races. Mostly we've focused here on elections to the House and the Senate because, of course, people want to put some checks on Trump. I know that in some states, election for governor is a key for unions and for liberals, especially in the uh, Midwest. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the gubernatorial elections. Well, first of all, uh, gubernatorial elections are very important, not only because governors have the ability to push for change, negative change, as far as collective bargaining rights are concerned, as far as attacking uh, working families, attacking uh, workers all in those communities across the state. Um, So gubernatorial elections and state legislative elections are very, very important. But also, uh, many governors control the redistricting process, and we can never forget the importance of that. So we've targeted states like Ohio and Michigan Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Florida. We're even looking at Georgia. We, we think we have a good chance there just to elect governors who are friendly and who believe in the kinds of issues that working families believe in. And we're going to do everything we can to get them elected. Lee Saunders, he's president of AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Thank you, Lee, for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. 
Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.